The RBA has held off on raising the cash rate for now. This comes as a sigh of relief to homeowners who have slogged through 12 rate rises since May 2022. But with warnings of future rate rises ahead, many people are questioning whether they're the only way to stop inflation. Now, we are going to get a little bit wonky on this podcast talking about monetary and fiscal policy, but we'll do our best here to keep it understandable and relevant to what's going on in the Australian economy. I've got two of Grattan's experts in the field here to help, Trent Wiltshire, Deputy Program Director of Economic Policy, and Joey Maloney, Senior Associate. Joey, let's start with the basics. What is inflation? Where does it come from? And why is it bad? Inflation is sort of an economy-wide increase in prices. Now, we can have increases in prices in individual markets. So think of a, a cyclone in Queensland disrupting banana plantations. Banana prices go through the roof. They eventually come back down. What inflation is, is that kind of havoc happening on average across most markets. So what that means in aggregate is it's an imbalance between the aggregate supply of goods and services available for people to buy and the aggregate demand. So the amount of goods and services that people want to buy. Now, high inflation is bad for a few different reasons. Key reason is it diminishes people's purchasing power. What that means is that your dollar doesn't go as far as it used to. You can't buy as many things with your dollar as you used to be able to, which means that the value of your, your take-home pay or whatever your income is diminished. What that also means is it erodes the value of people's savings. So if you had five grand saved in May last year, sort of when the inflation really started, that's worth less today because you can't buy as much with it. The big danger with high inflation is it persists and can even accelerate. So if, saving, if, if it's eroding the value of people's savings and discouraging savings, then that might mean more money that is spent on goods and services, which means that represents an increase in aggregate demand, which can make the problem worse again. The other mechanism is that as people see the value of their take-home pay being diminished by inflation, that can flow through to higher wage demands. So, you know, wages try to chase inflation. Now, that can lead to an acceleration of inflation. That's probably not what Australia is experiencing at the moment, but it's something that policymakers are really cognizant of because it's a real, real danger. You know, there's episodes in history of inflation accelerating out of control to the point where you get something called hyperinflation, um, which basically just debases the entire economy. I was going to say, I still remember my year 12 history lessons about, you know, hyperinflation and obviously the rise of Hitler in Germany. So so it's something that has happened before in history. I mean, we've got, um, you know, the high, uh, the low unemployment rate at the moment as well. So it sounds like that's fueling inflation too. Yeah, a tight labour market is certainly representative of, of a hot economy. And a hot economy is one where in which there is high aggregate demand. Aggregate demand outweighing aggregate supply is fundamentally uh, what causes inflation. So, you know, those episodes you were talking about before Cat in history, um, where, you know, accelerating inflation kind of can destabilise an economy and then can destabilise a society, is why, you know, central banks in most developed countries are focused on maintaining low and stable inflation because it's a necessary condition for economic growth. Now, it's not a sufficient condition, but it's necessary. So that's why... Uh, it's the focus of central banks. But we're lucky enough to be joined today by you know, a former employee of our central bank here in Australia. And low and stable inflation is not quite what we have right now, Trent. Yeah, looking at the, the current data, we see that inflation is still 
very high. Um, it is coming down a bit, but it's still well above the RBA's target range of 2 to 3%. So the monthly CPI indicator, which came out a few weeks ago, um, had headline inflation at 5.6% year on year. That's fallen from about 6.8%. Um, so it is coming down. Uh, but the underlying rate of inflation, so that's what the RBA really cares about. So that's when you strip out the volatile items. And there's a few ways you can do that. But the different measures of that um, in this monthly CPI indicator range from 6.1 to 6.4%. So still um, high and looking pretty persistent. So you can see that in the, the services inflation, which is quite a persistent measure, that's still very high. The most recent full uh, consumer price index data we have is from the March quarter. So it's a little bit dated now. Um, that, had C, that had inflation at 7% year on year. And again, the, the underlying rate of inflation at 6.6%. So yeah, still well above that 2 to 3 2 to 3% um, target range. What's been driving this high inflation? Well, over the past year, it has been mainly a supply side story. So those supply side shocks such as uh, the COVID-19 supply chain disruptions, you know, they're ending, but they still lingered quite a bit in 2022. The um, Russian invasion of Ukraine um, that, you know, pushed up energy prices, flooding on the East Coast of Australia, all these factors were held back the supply side. Um, and they contributed to higher inflation. So the RBA estimates that those supply side factors contributed at least a half of our inflation. So, you know, a big part of it. But even if you take that out, the demand side drivers of inflation still meant the inflation rate would have been over 3%, so still above target. So while it was a supply side story predominantly, you know, strong demand was still a factor. And looking forward, it does seem like the demand side is going to be the driver of inflation. So that's what the RBA can control directly through interest rate changes. So those demand side factors, high wages, the tight labor market, um, Kat and Joe, you just talked about, that's what you know, the RBA is probably worried about in terms of inflation persisting above the band. Um, so that's why the RBA is probably forecasting an extended period of above target inflation. It flows through to inflation expectations. So if inflation is high and people expect it to remain higher, that actually drives inflation higher. So it's a very much expectations-driven game. So that's why the um, central banks and the Reserve Bank care about credibility, the fact that people trust that the RBA will get the inflation rate back down to its target range. Mortgage holders across the country are kind of really concerned every time the cash rate goes up. Why and how do higher interest rates impact inflation? It's a fair question because it, it does seem a little bit counterintuitive at, at some stage. We've got rising inflation and the RBA is pushing up the, a major cost for many households. That seems like it's sort of working against the the aims of bringing inflation down. But the mechanism is that, so the RBA uses its cash rate, which is what it can control directly, to influence interest rates across the economy paid by, paid by households and businesses. So these interest rates affect aggregate demand and therefore employment across the economy. So the RBA's mandate is to maintain the stability of the currency, full employment, and to promote the economic prosperity and welfare of Australia. So those broad objectives have been narrowed down to what they call inflation targeting. So the RBA aims for 2 to 3% inflation on average over the medium term, while also considering um, what's going on in the, the labour market. So these higher interest rates, at the moment so we're seeing interest rates obviously rising quite rapidly, they impact demand through a number of what are known as um, interest rate channels or monetary policy channels. So first there's a savings and investment channel. So high interest rates mean there's a higher incentive to save and this incentive to borrow and invest. So that drags down aggregate demand. The wealth channel, so when um, interest rates rise, that generally 
pulls down or lowers asset prices. So you think of house values. When people's assets are worth less, they're less likely to spend. So that drives an aggregate demand. The cash flow channel, this is the most talked about one. Um, so quite simply, high interest rates means higher mortgage repayments. Um, so it means people have less money to spend on other things. So that pulls down aggregate demand. So you think about Australia, there's about um, one third of households have a mortgage. That's over 3 million households. Australia has a high proportion of variable rate mortgages. So the interest rate changes directly or quickly affect um, mortgage holders more so than lots of other countries. So you know, that's a really important channel, but it's not the only one. Uh, and then another channel is the exchange rate channel. And this is actually really important. It's just not talked about much, um, probably because the losers or the impacts are more broadly spread. So it's not as, as harshly felt by individuals, but that's when the Australian, um, when interest rates rise here, Australian dollars are more attractive for overseas investors. And that pushes up the Australian dollar which uh, reduces exports, making imports cheaper, which flows through um, to lower inflation. But importantly for the exchange channel, it, it depends on the relative interest rate. So our interest rates compared to other countries. So if everyone's tightening and we're not, that means you know, it's not it's not working as well as it should have. So at, at the moment, that's somewhat the case. So our cash rate is at 4.1%. Look at our peers and our major trading partners. So it's 4.75% in Canada. New Zealand's 5.5%. The US is 5.125%. So we're below our peers. So that's potentially actually having, if we don't keep raising rates, that's having a um, de um, depreciating our dollar, which is pushing up inflation potentially. Yeah, I think the exchange rate channel is a really interesting one to me because it's not really talked about in the discourse at all. But, you know, the, the RBA's, um, you know, principal model of the macro economy kind of suggests that all else equal, it's probably the most powerful channel. So... You know, I take from that that, you know, you're talking about the relativities of where Australia's cash rate compares to comparable economies right now. And we've just come off an interest rate pause. So my instinct would be that it would be front of mind for the RBA if uh, when they're considering whether to, you know, keep the cash rate on pause, what our relative position is, because if their own model is saying this channel is really powerful, that's probably something they're thinking about really carefully. One other thing to note as well with monetary policy is that so the Reserve Bank uses this monetary policy to, to tinker with aggregate demand. It really has no impact on supply um, in the short term. In the long term, it can have a bit of an impact, given we want to not have big recessions that cause scarring. Sometimes you hear commentators talk about, oh, there's, there's too much is being left to the RBA to generate growth. It's not really the case. The RBA is focused on linking or limiting aggregate demand or linking aggregate demand to aggregate to supply to maintain that stable inflation. It's not about driving productivity, um, you know, increasing the supply side. That's for other policymakers to do. The RBA cares about you know, tinkering with demand to keep inflation low and stable, which is, a, as Joe said, a necessary, necessary condition for economic growth, but not a, the only thing that matters. Yeah, I find that fascinating. I, I didn't really know anything about the exchange rate being a lever for monetary policy as well. Um, so that's really interesting to hear that. I think the reason we obviously hear so much about the cash rate and the interest rate rises is because, you know, they do hit that third of the Australian population and it, it hits hard. It's, it has really hit a lot of households very hard with so many people under mortgage stress and then the flow on impact to the rental market as well. I think I probably know a bit of the answer to this question, but you know, why are people looking for alternatives to monetary policy? And I think we'd probably go through a few of those alternatives as well. 
I think it's a very a very natural reaction to sort of say there's a policy decision being made that is distributing pain to um, certain households. So it seems very, very like predictable and natural to me that people would be looking around wondering, is there another way to solve this problem that's maybe um, a bit less painful? So like you said, I think most people are looking at that cash flow channel. Most people are looking at what's the impact on their mortgage repayments and thinking, this is really, really hurting me. Is there an alternative? There's also another concern that people have, which is that, you know, by design, like we've been saying, the point of higher interest rates is to try to reduce aggregate demand. If you reduce aggregate demand, you risk higher unemployment. So I think some people are concerned about that kind of broader impact as well. You know, at the outset, it's really important to be realistic about the fact that there is no real way to get inflation down without imposing costs. It's really, the question is then about who bears these costs and, and to what degree. You know, like we've been talking about, the fundamentals are an imbalance of aggregate supply and aggregate demand. And like Trent said, you can't just increase the productive capacity or aggregate supply overnight. We're always trying to do this. Policymakers, economists, politicians are always trying to make the economy more productive. There's been lots of ink spilt, um, you know, over decades on how to improve productivity in the Australian economy. And we've been in a productivity slump for a while. And I think that goes to show it's, it's really hard and it's a long-term project and you can't do it overnight. We are essentially left with no choice but to try to target uh, aggregate demand, which, of course, does risk higher unemployment. The RBA Deputy Governor, Michelle Bullock, uh, was pretty upfront about this in a speech uh, last week about risking higher unemployment is a natural and expected consequences, consequence of higher interest rates. How do higher interest rates distribute pain? It broadly, in one sense, because of all those different channels we were going through before, they distribute pain sort of here, there and everywhere. But it is fair to say that it, it will tend to, it does kind of concentrate itself on households with a lot of mortgage debt. You know, these are typically younger to middle-aged households early in their mortgage, big mortgages because house prices are, you know, through the roof in this country. It's important to note that these households are typically probably on the higher income side. You know, not rich, rich, but probably on the higher income side. And on the flip side, lower income households typically don't have mortgages, so aren't really being, you know, hit by the cash flow channel as hard as other households. And another thing just worth noting is that if inflation is diminishing the value of each dollar, then it's diminishing the value of each dollar that denominates the outstanding principal on your mortgage. So it does actually erode the value of debt too. Yeah, and I think this is a really interesting aspect of it. I mean, the RBA is using what levers it has, but there are other things out there. And fiscal policy is where governments are using taxing and spending decisions to influence inflation. But I'd really like to know why fiscal policy isn't the main lever used to control inflation. Governments used to used to play a big role in this sort of day-to-day tinkering with um, the economy to try and manage inflation. It was handed over primarily to the Reserve Bank in the early 90s, early to mid 90s. That followed a trend across the world of um, central banks becoming more independent and having this responsibility of targeting inflation. And that's been the the predominant method of managing the demand side or or managing um, the cyclical nature of the economy. Previously, governments did play a much more active role. You look back at, say, um, World War II, post-World War II, the government was really active in that fiscal policy space. So it could be done, um, 
but it's there are some downsides to it. So, you know, you think about the Commonwealth government, its spending is big. It's about 25% of the economy. So its taxes, taxing and spending decisions, you know, could really quite easily or can and do influence, you know, how the economy tracks. But why is it good that the Reserve Bank has a responsibility of interest rates and fiscal of um, day-to-day management rather than the government? Well, simply put, politicians don't like making unpopular decisions and are very likely to bow to public pressure when things get tough. So you can imagine um, earlier this year, you know, Phil Lowe is very unpopular. He's raising rates. Inflation's too high. It needs to come down. As Joe just talked about, you know, there's tough trade-offs here. Someone ultimately loses from how to get inflation down. If the government, if the treasurer had his, was able to manipulate interest rates, it's very likely with all the front page stories about how much it's hurting households, the treasurer would have stopped raising rates earlier this year and we'd be left with high and lingering inflation. Instead, the unpopularity gets um, handed over to, to Dr. Lowe, who um, you know is willing to cop it. <laughs> He's not up for election in a couple of years' time, or there is um, being potentially being reappointed soon. But he's he's independent, so he's able to raise rates without the consequences of it that a politician would face. Yeah, I was thinking that um, you know if Philip Lowe had been a politician, I mean, there's been protesters outside of the RBA. I've never heard of that before. In the late two thousands, um, when the Reserve Bank was raising rates again because inflation was too high, I think um, Glenn Stevens, the governor at the time, was labelled the most unpopular man or the most hated man in Australia on the front pages. So this is not uncommon, and it's a key reason why the Reserve Bank is handed the responsibility of um, you know, managing inflation. The evidence shows that countries with more independent central banks, they have lower inflation than, than other countries that the central banks are more influenced by government. Another reason why monetary policy is better than fiscal policy is that fiscal policy is not as nimble as monetary policy. So if the government's changing laws, it has to go through parliament, good policy might get shifted by you know, horse trading in the Senate and things get shifted around. So we don't end up with optimal policy to manage um, demand. The timeliness, the, the way it actually gets implemented can be not as, you know, not optimal. And a good example of that is the home builder um, episode from um, 2020. At the time, it seemed like a great idea to support the construction sector, you know, giving money to households to renovate or build new houses. In the end, it's been a really poor policy. It's actually contributed to higher construction costs, which as a result have meant you know, construction companies have faced these much higher costs. They've gone under. It's affected a lot of households. It's slowed the pipeline. So it was, it was good intent, but in the end, badly designed and badly timed. What I'm thinking is why don't we have an independent body like the RBA does for monetary policy, for fiscal policy? Uh, it's certainly, you know, theoretically possible and it's certainly something that um, is brought up a lot. You know, like Grant was talking about, independence is a, can be a really desirable feature for macroeconomic management, particularly in an inflationary episode when you have to make unpopular decisions. So it can be a very attractive idea to sort of bureaucrats and, and policy wonks but it, it is really worth exploring the considerations about it being inescapably undemocratic in a way. So, you know, independent fiscal policy would remove, at least to some degree, two key questions from the democratic process. So, you know, first, how much tax is the government collecting? How big is the government going to be? How much of the income generated by the economy is the government going to take? And then second, how is that tax collected? 
you know, there's a whole different way that you can levy taxes in an economy and they all have different, you know, equity or distributional impacts. They impact different people in different ways to different degrees. So, you know, these are really, really important questions for a society to grapple with. And, you know, a lot of the great thinkers over the years, like, you know, um, people like Locke and Rousseau wrote a lot about the importance of people having democratic representation and having a say in the imposition of taxes uh, in their society. So it's not to say that that makes this idea implausible or impossible, but it's just to say that it has some deep philosophical questions that it needs to grapple with. Also with, um, you know, we talk about the Reserve Bank being independent. Now, ultimately, it is accountable to the people via the parliament. So the senior leadership of the RBA appear before the House of Reps and the Senate a few times a year. The governor is ultimately appointed by the treasurer, who's um, you know, a member of parliament and subject to the, um, the democratic process as well. So there's a degree of independence from the RBA, but it's not fully independent from government. So you know, this process or the setup we have in terms of monetary policy could change. And if the people decide that's what they want, but you know, these are the, the pros and cons of the, the process we have at the moment. Yeah, that is so interesting, um, both of you, because I have never really thought about, you know, the ability to have representation to question, you know, the taxes that are imposed on me as a citizen as something really important. You know, we often think of taxes, the thing that's over there that we do once a year. But when you think about it and you play it out to its logical conclusion, there's so many ways that taxes could enforce inequality um, and could create a very unjust and unfair society. Um, so I think it's a really important point you make here. I think we should play a bit of a fun game though. I mean, let's imagine a world where fiscal policy was the main lever used to control inflation. So I want to know what are the options? Um, maybe you go first, Joey. One option that I've heard floated a fair bit is um, a floating superannuation guarantee rate. So the superannuation guarantee is the compulsory super contributions or the rate of compulsory super contributions that people pay uh, on their wages. So, you know, the idea is that that could be, uh, that number could float depending on macroeconomic conditions and, and that the decision to move it up or down be given to an independent body. I think it's sort of, it's fair to think of uh, the SG as fiscal policy. The SG is, in a way, tantamount to a tax. It's just one that produces a one-for-one vested benefits to the payer. And, the, the you know, it would work because uh, super is just forced savings. So, you know, the more you clip people's take-home pay, the more that you reduce aggregate demand and then vice versa the other way. So it would work. There's probably a couple of issues worth considering um, when exploring this idea. One is it bumps up against something called the Tim Bergen rule. Now, this is just a general principle that says uh, you probably need as many policy instruments as you have policy objectives. If we try to do two things or more than two things with one policy instrument, we're probably unlikely to achieve both or uh, achieve even just one or both um, to a satisfactory degree. So, you know, the superannuation guarantee or compulsory super contributions are there for the policy objective of achieving or helping to achieve adequate uh, standards of living in retirement. Now we're going to say we're also going to use it for macroeconomic management. Can it do both of those objectives at the same time? the Tim Bergen rule would say probably not. The second thing worth considering is the equity implications of, you know, using this, using the SG in this fashion. A low-income renter, for example, these are typically probably among, you know, 
the more disadvantaged people in our society are typically poorer people living in the private rental market. They're going to suffer more from a higher superannuation guarantee rate than a commensurate increase in the cash rate is what my intuition would be because the higher superannuation guarantee rate is going to clip their take-home pay directly, whereas the higher interest rate, they don't have a mortgage, so it's not affecting them too much on that front. It's going to have, you know, like through all the channels we've been talking about, it's going to have an impact. But directly clipping their take-home pay via the SG, that's really something worth considering. So, you know, if one of the knocks on monetary policy is it's a bit blunt, it's a bit of a blunt tool, I'd argue that using the SG for macroeconomic management could actually be even blunter. It basically, it just hits all wage earners, rich or poor, in equal proportions. You just answered the question I was going to ask you, which is, you know, our previous research has shown that superannuation increases come out of wages. And given wages growth is is stagnating, I mean, that sounds like it would actually have a negative flow-on effect, um, as you've just said. Trent, what other ideas are out there? They're probably similar concepts to the SG one. So, you know, you could potentially have some system of the GST automatically rising and falling in times of high and low inflation. So at the moment, high inflation, maybe the GST jumps to 15% uh, rather than 10%. You know, there are lots of difficulties around that though. Obviously, it's a, the GST is a deal with the states. Um, it'd be very administratively difficult for firms to put this through but like you know it's it's feasible um a similar concept might be to you know not the gst you could adjust marginal tax rates instead so say the the 40 the 30 tax um bracket sort of jumps to 35 percent in times of high inflation all these methods are about taking you know pay out of people's pockets to to um you know withdraw demand out of the economy so as we talked about a few times now this is about different people would feel the the, the cost of these different policy um, options. They are all um, sort of taxing options. Another one is on the spending side. So the government obviously pays a lot of money in terms of transfer payments. So you could adjust them. So think about the big ones are um, the pension, the age pension and job seekers. So this is purely a thought experiment, but this is the way that a fiscal policy could work. So in times of higher inflation, you'd actually pull back on those payments uh, in times of high inflation. Incredibly politically unpopular, basically impossible. And in fact, our system works the other way that these transfer payments are indexed to inflation. So they make sure that they, they maintain their real value in terms of, in times of high inflation or high, high wage growth. So like, again, pure thought experiment that, but that's how fiscal policy could work in terms of automatically acting as a, a way to um, adjust aggregate demand. But again, it's all about who wins and who loses from the different ways of withdrawing stimulus. I can see you laughing at that, that uh, suggestion, Kat. Trent, I can see the current affair headlines right now. You know, politicians take pensioners' money and time exactly, of crisis. Exactly, exactly. I mean, the headlines are endless. I mean, there's no politician in their right mind that would ever do that. So and another issue like with the, all these options is, you know, we're talking about times of high inflation, government taking more tax from people. It'd be really, really politically hard for the government not to hand back at least some of that in the form of cost of living relief. And you see the government's really struggling to do that at the moment. Now they've done pretty well in terms of holding on to most of the extra tax they've collected rather than um, dishing it out in terms of cost of living relief, but they have handed it back a little bit of it. And that's a political challenge. Of course, there's another idea that's been raised a bit quite recently, and that's simply price control. So now it seems like a really nice, simple idea. Inflation's too high. Well, 
why doesn't the government just step in and say certain sectors of the economy can't raise their prices? Shouldn't shouldn't that just limit inflation and you know there's no issue at all? Well, it probably won't work overall, but you know, there's some pros and cons, so it's definitely worth discussing. So it's actually it actually has happened quite recently. So the government implemented um, price caps for energy um, last year. So in effect, this actually did um, reduce headline inflation. So there was caps placed on energy prices. Um, the governor of the RBA, Phil Lowe, said this shaved off half a percentage point of inflation, of headline inflation. So that seemed to be effective in terms of reducing inflation. Um, but of course, and Joey said this right at the outset, inflation is about the overall price level. By capping prices in one area, what simply happened is that, yes, prices came down in that that particular segment of the the economy, but people then had more money to spend on other things. So rather than spending your money on heating your home or cooling your home, you could go out for dinner more, you could go on a holiday. And you see that that's the inflation has become very broad based in terms of people taking savings and spending on other things. So price controls don't actually reduce aggregate demand, it just changes spending patterns. Noting that you know, one way that the, the, fact, the effect of say price caps on energy might impact inflation is through expectations. So the fact that headline inflation did come down um, that might mean that people see that headline inflation is lower than they than otherwise. That means that future wage demands from people might be a bit lower because the, the actual true rate of inflation has come down a little bit. So that might feed through to potentially lower interest rates in the future if it does um, impact expectations. So that's one way it could work. Uh, but in terms of overall distribution and of spending, price controls really don't impact um, aggregate demand. So Joey, so I've talked about price controls potentially you know, not working because they don't reduce aggregate demand. But what if it's actually just companies you know, boosting prices and chasing profits instead? Can, can we do anything to um, change that? So what you're alluding to, Trent, is what's been broadly dubbed greedflation theory. So this is, from what I gather, the theory sort of suggests that recent increases in prices are essentially firms just expanding margins and it's not necessarily due to any imbalances of aggregate demand and aggregate supply. So first thing to note is, yes, it's a correct observation that profits are up. This doesn't tell you really anything about the causes of underlying inflation. I'm very confident that we've had a big increase in aggregate demand and we've had an aggregate supply shock as well. And you know, an increase in demand is almost certain to push up margins, certainly in the short run. That's what you'd expect if demand is exceeding supply. Um, there's a lot of work out there kind of decomposing the contributors to inflation, and that shows you where the money is flowing, but not necessarily what's causing inflation. So increasing markups or increased profits can be a contributor to inflation without necessarily being a cause of inflation. So the question is, what's causing the increased markups? If we just break it down a little bit, you know, price increases can arise three different ways. One, consumers having the means and willingness to pay more, so that's on the demand side. Two, firms having less to sell or having their costs increase, supply side. Or the third one is, you know, what economists sometimes refer to as conduct. So this is like firm conduct, how firms map economic conditions to their price setting. And my interpretation of greedflation theory is that it's basically saying we've had a change in firm conduct. 
Well, I haven't heard a compelling explanation as to why there'd be why there's been a big step change in conduct. But there is some interesting work out there. Professor John Quiggan from the University of Queensland, he's done some interesting work on how if you have uncompetitive markets to begin with, then you're hit with an initial inflationary shock. That inflation can be amplified by the conduct of firms in an already uncompetitive market. But again, that doesn't tell you anything about the initial causation of the inflation. That still comes back to the fundamentals of aggregate demand and aggregate supply. Australia definitely does have uh, some problems with competitiveness in its economy. Professor Chris Edmund at the University of Melbourne has done a lot of work showing how Australia's economy is probably less competitive overall than other ones, that firms don't compete as much, particularly in some key industries. So all of that's to say, yeah, we should be trying to do better competition policy all the time. That's what we have the ACCC for, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. Uh, they're working hard day and night to try to make sure we have uh, you know, competitive markets in our economy. It's just really, really hard. It, it can be a really drawn out and legalistic process for the government to try to intervene to boost competition in markets. And it's, I think you know, the upshot for me is it's competition policy is certainly not a silver bullet for the current moment. Ultimately, I come back to the, the fundamental factors driving aggregate demand and aggregate supply that Trent outlined right at the top. Trent, finally, where do you think interest rates are going? Can we have a little bit of economic speculation here? At the, the latest board meeting, um, the bank kept rates on hold and they sort of said it was a very finely balanced call. So rates on hold at 4.1%. But you know, in the notes, the, the board said some further tightening monetary policy may be required to ensure that inflation returns to target in a reasonable time frame. So it's definitely on the cards that, you know, future, you know, further rate rises may happen. I think we'll see one to two more, but it'll be really highly dependent on the inflation number. So we've got the, the June quarter CPI coming out in late July. That'll be key. And then also wage outcomes as well. So even though wage outcomes have been pretty modest, like they're ticking up, they're still pretty modest. If they continually to, to track up, and we know that productivity growth is very, you know, you know, negative or sluggish at the moment. Those factors combined mean I think the the RB will keep raising rates a little bit further um, before we hit the peak. Thank you so much, Trent and Joey. I really appreciated that in-depth explainer of inflation because it's affecting so many of us at the moment. If you'd like to talk to us more about this topic, you can find us on social media at Grattan Inst on Twitter and Grattan Institute on all other social media platforms. We are a not-for-profit organisation and your donations help support this podcast and keep us doing the great research that we do. Please support us if you can at grattan.edu.au forward slash donate. As always, take care and thanks so much for listening.